Well, friends, welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast. My name is Mike Goldsworthy, and we are creating space here where we're having conversations to reimagine the church in our current moment. And it is just a gift to get to be here with you today. And in just a bit, you are going to get to hear from my good friend Jason Adam Miller as he talks about this new great book he has coming out uh, called When the World Breaks comes out August 1st. I'll have it linked in the show notes. And a fair disclaimer here as we get into this, when the interview starts the first like six minutes, might feel a little bit self-indulgent there in the conversation we're having. So if you want to skip over all of that and get into some of the content when we begin that conversation, just skip ahead like six minutes and you'll jump over all of that. But otherwise, you know, I think it's like you'll find it really endearing. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, A few updates on things that I think many of you might care about or want to know about. The first is the Post-Evangelical Collective, uh, where we are like gathering uh, church leaders, pastors, artists, other sort of folks who find themselves as stakeholders uh, in the church and don't feel like maybe in some sort of way have been formed by an evangelical experience, but don't feel like you fit there for maybe all kinds of different reasons. We have been gathering, we have been doing all kinds of like things together. We now like have an actual website, postevangelicalcollective.org, I think. Um, I hope that that's it. I'm going to link it in the show notes. It'll be real on there. But on that website, there's a few things that you might find intriguing. The first is there's a map that we are slowly building out of. We've identified kind of five core values of churches that seem to be true in this space. And uh, so we've been building out uh, a map because we get emails and text messages all the time from folks who are saying, where is there a church that's like this uh, near me? So we um, have got a good little list that started there that will continue to grow and expand. Um, But that's a good place to start on that website. Then we have been having regional gatherings this year rather than one big large gathering. Local leaders who are finding other folks who sort of resonate, who feel like they've been ecclesiologically homeless, don't really know where they fit in the church landscape, but kind of fit with what's happening in the post-evangelical space. And so they've been gathering, I think we've had four or five of them so far around, I think I've heard like 200 folks have gathered in different places around the country. We've got one happening uh, in Denmark, I think it is. And I think there's a total of 15 of them happening this year. But um, those of you who are local-ish to me, We're having an L.A. regional doing it uh, alongside Kevin Ha, who's the pastor at New City Church in L.A. We're going to be hosting it up at their church offices. It's going to be September 21st, and uh, I'll send out some more on my uh, email list. I'll send out some more details about that as it starts to get closer, but just wanted to give you a heads up on that. So there's that. Uh, One more quick commercial before we get into the interview is uh, some of you have been asking about what my work has looked like and several of you have engaged with me and even asked like how to engage with me in my work. And so more and more of my work is looking like doing um, executive coaching. So essentially those of you who find yourself in some sort of form of leadership, however you might define leadership. And so that might look like the work that you do in your home or in your community. It might look like the work that you do at a place of employment or in some sort of space where you're volunteering, but in some sort of way you identify yourself as a leader. 
and we get to work together in your leadership and how your leadership and life sort of intersect to help you move towards more wholeness, towards fuller engagement in all of what you're doing, uh, to help you show up as your best true self in all of those places so that you can be more fully engaged, both in the work that you're called to and also in the life that you're living and creating. And so if you feel like there's some sort of gap for you, whether that's a gap in like uh, living out what you feel called to, a gap in trying to figure out what's next, a gap in the way that you uh, want to engage in your work, but how you're actually engaging in your work, uh, a gap in how well you're showing up in your life outside of work, there's some sort of gap there that you want to overcome, I would love to get to spend some time with you and see if like uh, it would work for us to work together, if I could be helpful for you. So uh, I will set aside time to do a free uh, session with you to work through some of that. So that's all on my website. That's mikegoldsworthy.com, again, in the show notes. Now, all kinds of commercials are a little bit long. There's so much good stuff in this interview. I think you are going to love those of you who are familiar with Jason, those of you who aren't, you're going to love what he has to share here. You're going to love his book. I genuinely cannot recommend it highly enough. Please go pick it up. Um, his church, South Bend City Church, really, in a lot of ways, I consider that my church. In fact, South Bend friends, I can't wait to be with you. I'll be with you in a few weeks on August 6th. But before that, please grab Jason's book and enjoy this interview with him. All right, friends. Well, it is good to have our friend Jason Miller back on the podcast. Uh, Jason, when you were on before, you're, you're like one of my highest uh, listened to podcast episodes. So it's like, what do they call that? Like the Colbert bump? Um, oh, I don't know. I mean, um, what you don't realize is I just like the sound of my own voice so much that I listen to that episode <laughs> twice a day, every day. Yeah, no, I think that that's probably right. That's my experience. Took out the geographic analytics before you put any stock in that. <laughs> um, well, you have a book coming out. And before we talk about it, and, you know, I need to do the obligatory bio. And, you know, you wrote a new bio on your new fancy website, which I like a lot. And, and you said, here's, here's how you wrote it. You said, I'm a pastor who never quite felt home in a church, an artist who figured out the sermon is his song, and a teacher who still has some questions. I studied theology in the graduate school at University of Notre Dame, followed Jesus with the people of South Bend City Church, an eclectic Christian community known for its thoughtful teaching. That was nice of you to talk about the thoughtful teaching at the church that you teach at. It's, they say there's really thoughtful teaching coming out of South Bend City Church. <laughs> it's inclusive vision and its commitment to its city context. And when I'm not in South Bend, you'll probably find me in Nashville, cheering for my friends, a small rock venue in Chicago for a band you never heard of, or traveling somewhere far away to see what I can learn and bring home. Um, like, it's a wonderful bio. Genuinely, like, I love how it's written and stuff. But I thought, like, for the fine folks at home who are listening to this, that maybe what I would do is move past the like typical bio and I could offer a few uh, insights that I have experienced from you that you could offer some commentary on before we get to your book and all of the good content to oh, show. Man. I can't wait. I another can't dimension wait. of Jason Adam Miller from jasonadammiller.com. Uh, no, they're not, they're not great. Like I, I feel like you might be let down, but here's, here's a few things I've noticed. First, if you enter a room and they're at a house and there's a dog in that home, you will abandon everything else and everyone else and go straight to that dog. True or false? 100%. Yeah. 
True, 100%. Uh, I have no commentary. That's just true. No commentary. That's just because I know how to live. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, where some of us are like, oh, don't get dog hair on me. Like you get down on the ground and there's slobber. Yeah. If I, I, I wish I had a dog right now. Just uh, life circumstances aren't a great fit for the kind of dog I want to have. So I am, I'm like uh, very eager to meet a dog whenever I can. Okay. Our, our daughter, Kate, desperately wants a dog. And for various reasons, we aren't getting one. But we just found out that the shelter that's near us, they're so overloaded with dogs and trying to get people to um, take them that they're doing, we're calling it the rent-a-dog program, where you can take a dog <laughs> home for one or two nights. So we think we're going to let her do the rent-a-dog program go. to get some of it out of her system. Yeah, what if that backfires and it just intensifies? That's probably exactly what it'll do, but she's moving out in two okay. years. so. Okay, <laughs> this is just a, a holding measure? Totally, that's good. 100%. Um, all right, you have a unique sleep routine that travels with you wherever you go. I do. Which I've experienced because we've shared Airbnb rooms together a few times. Yeah, big believer in sleep hygiene. Uh, also, like, like sleep really matters to me. Um, I, I, I have a, a history of depression, and like um, sleep's one of, the, one of the ways that you take care of yourself, you know? So yeah, I travel with my eye mask to uh, block out the light. I travel with my ear uh, plugs to block out the sound. And I subject any roommate to the uh, white noise app on my phone. That's quite loud. It's great. I it it's I enjoy it. It's lovely. Uh, you know, part of part of that came from me. From some of that's like um, you know it, s certain kinds of travel that you and I have even shared. Like you don't know what you're going to face overseas. Maybe like what kind of sure. environment you're going to be in. Uh, also, I end up I stay often with friends who have very young children. And uh, they're up at like 5 a.m. and I intend to sleep till 9. And uh, this is my like, survival tactic for that. No, it's good. It's good. I appreciate it. Like you, um, uh, I don't know if you described it this way or if somebody who we were with described it this way, but like you create like a little cocoon that kind of yeah, like little, yeah, little traveling yeah, yeah, goes with you wherever you go and you can get what you need out of that situation. I mean, some of us adapt to whatever the space is and you're like the space, like, the space can happen around me, and I've got my thing that I do within that. Which is probably just a metaphor for an Enneagram 5's relationship with reality. That's oh, fine. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, despite being an artist and an intellectual, you also are a sports fan for baseball in particular. Love is baseball. that Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't follow it well right now, but I love watching baseball. Okay. And who, who's your team? I don't think I actually know who would be your team. I'd probably be like Cubs then Red Sox. Okay. So, you know, until they maybe one day would end up in a World Series, you can root for both. Um, and the last thing I got is that people might not experience about you without like kind of being around you is that you're actually a really good chef. Oh, thanks. I um, love to cook. And I love to cook for my friends. Yeah. I've gotten to experience some fantastic meals. And so I feel like you defy the uh, stereotypes of like a single bachelor uh, like you don't have ramen if I go to your house. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think I have ramen. I do. I keep some stuff in the freezer. Uh, I keep chicken nuggets in the freezer. Oh. Like kids' chicken nuggets. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah, I like to cook. Okay. Allison and I were talking recently about we were reflecting on when we first got married. We got married young, our early twenties, and our meals when we were first married often consisted of frozen chicken nuggets or frozen like hot dogs or, or not hot dogs, uh, oh, corn yeah. dogs. Like oh yeah. That we're like, how did we like actually like how are our hearts <laughs> still functioning today? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the twenty-five year old body can handle stuff that these bodies of ours are not up for. 
Uh, okay, I've got a bunch more of those, but like, I, I think it would be a little bit self-indulgent and folks okay. aren't yeah. stoked on listening. The good people that are, are still the hanging with us are still to move hanging. on. So you've got a new book coming out called When the World Breaks. It releases uh, at the beginning of August. August 1st? Yeah? Yeah, August 1st. August 1st. And um, I thought like kind of where I wanted to take this a little bit, we'll see, we'll see where all we end up going with it. But I thought maybe where we go is I wanted to like, zoom out a little bit and maybe we'll get into some specifics in the book. I got a bunch of like quotes and stuff to ask you about, but I, I kind of wanted to start at a, maybe a more macro level. And I mean, I'll just start with like the easy thing and, but I've got some more like, I guess, framing macro kinds of questions to ask you. But the first is to get us going on, like, just tell us a little bit about the book and how it came about. Yeah. The sort of inciting incident for me was back in 2010 uh, I went on the first version of the same trip that you and I later met on and mm-hmm. became friends. Um, this is over to Israel and Palestine, and it's uh, with a your group called the Telos Group, and um, I think some of your listeners probably are familiar too. But you know, you go over there to learn about what's happening and all the complicated dynamics and the many different stories that are being experienced there. And um, I like I, I naively thought that I was traveling over there for this kind of academic encounter. And I was wholly unprepared for the level of suffering um, and, and how deeply entrenched some of these problems are. You know, like, like one normal day might mean uh, in the morning meeting with an Israeli mother whose son was shot and killed by a Palestinian sniper, just kind of cold blood. And then an hour later, you're meeting with a Palestinian father whose 12-year-old daughter was shot and killed by the Israeli Defense Force. And then you're in a refugee camp watching a playground, uh, video surveillance footage of a playground with kids playing on it when tear gas canisters blanket the playground and the the kids run and um, after a number of days of that I just I reached a really deep breaking point for me and it was personal and it was emotional and it was also spiritual and theological I um, sort of unwittingly latched onto this mantra in my mind I kept kind of like saying to myself there's no way this gets better and it was kind of in the heat of that despair and a lostness that we visited the church of a Palestinian Christian leader there named Elias Shakur. He's a this kind of um, old elder and religious leader in the West Bank. And uh, they're, they're in his church. Uh, the steps that lead up to the building, the, they have the Beatitudes, these blessings from Matthew 5 engraved on them. And I actually kind of walked over them, ignoring them. And then in the church, I, I had kind of a profound encounter with an with an icon of brown skinned Jesus there, uh, with the Bible written in Aramaic and him saying, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life." And I, I think genuinely, I just I heard those words in a different register in the in the wake of all of that. And I've, I've heard this is from Jesus in the Book of John, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I've heard Christians fight about those words and use them to defend their views of who ends up in the afterlife. My whole life, and then something about being there, having heard this mantra in my own spirit about, like, there's no way this gets better. Um, it was a real personal sort of awakening moment. Um, one that many, many followers of Jesus have had for 2000 years. But for me, this was kind of the first time it hit the way it hit, which is that maybe what Jesus has been talking about is I'm actually trying to show you how you can inhabit the world that you're in right now differently and create new ways and new futures. And anyway, I go back to my hotel room and I open up Matthew 5 where those beatitude blessings are and this is the Bible I've used for years I've got notes all over it um, because I'm very spiritual (laughs) that's a joke Um, 
but I use it for preaching and teaching and prayer and devotion. And Matthew five is just, you know, pristine, untouched pages. And, and that kind of began the work. And then the, the, the one other layer here is, um, it, well, at first I began to realize that when he describes like poverty in your spirit, that like your heart has been vacated of joy and hope and, 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 and even power. Um, or when he describes those who mourn, um, when he speaks to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice, I began to realize I kind of have like a sensory memory that that same terrain that I was walking in the West Bank, um, spiritually and emotionally, I had also walked uh, in an earlier season of my life when depression became really acute and I hospitalized myself. And then also that same terrain, that kind of underlying spiritual, emotional experience for me um, was the, also the one that I walked um, with a really close loved one, uh, somebody who matters a lot to me through really scary seasons of addiction and self-destruction. So anyway, all that kind of came home with me and I began noodling on the, the Beatitudes as blessings for when the world breaks. And that's kind of what brings us forward till now. Hmm. And it's, um, I failed to say this earlier, but I really do mean it. It's a freaking like really good book. It hit me on a lot of levels and, um, and I've mentioned this to you before, but um, you are one of my favorite preachers to listen to. And I think a part of what I experienced in the book is what I experienced in your preaching. And I was, I was trying to like um, figure out how to name some of what like the moves that I saw you doing. And I was thinking about it this way. And tell me if this resonates with you that like, I think the way that you approach the scriptures and even like what to do with them. Um, you kind of have like a multi-dimensional approach to it that it feels mm -hmm. like specifically in the book, like you have thoughtful engagement with the text. Like you're not a slacker when it comes to the text, like you're doing deep, thoughtful, hard work more so than, um, many of us are doing with the text. You're doing your work there, but then like in the book you're engaging, like you're just mentioning now, like in mental health. So it's sort of at this like individual kind of level. Mm -hmm. And then there are like movements of peace that you're like engaging with and how does that intersect with these things so it's almost like this sort of corporate level mm -hmm. um and then it feels there's some like sociology work that's going in there you, you draw on like Ezra Klein and some of his work and um and I was thinking like I have often because I'll teach preaching and I'll often experience people when they're addressing a text for an audience and there's like a unidimensional approach that they're like, I'm just going to mm -hmm. do a lot of exegesis here. Right. Or, um, or it's just, it's very sociologically oriented. It's like, I, I just kind of, I want to have some good catchphrases that are like where people are at in the world and that kind of resonate with them. And this kind of like integration of these multiple levels and layers kind of all happening at once feels to me like one of the ways or one of the things that you're bringing to how you're helping us to think about faith and spirituality and the text and, and what it means for us in our world today. Does that feel fair? I mean, I, I, it's definitely what I am reaching for. So it means a lot to hear you say that. I think part of that for me is for my own, um, to feel a kind of integrity or a kind of coherence in my own working it out. Like I, I think a lot of that's me. Like I, for my own sake, I, ha I feel like I need to do that because I, I don't know what to do with an idea that like would only work at the personal level, but, would, but wouldn't work at the systemic level. 
or vice versa. I don't know what to do with an idea that would only work at the systemic level, but if you try to like bring it to the personal, somehow it falls apart. To me, that's like a litmus test. And so um, I think a lot, what I could feel myself doing in the book is I have to keep working this out for my own sanity and my own sense of um, understanding. So I, I love hearing you say that because I certainly, I certainly hope to do that, want to do that. Yeah, I mean, it feels like you um, you never let things stop with the simplistic or the easy answer. Maybe not always. It's not always like the simplistic, but I was thinking about like I've gotten to be in a lot of mainline contexts recently, and uh, there's so much that I appreciate there. But one of the things I've noticed in, in sermons or in just general teaching about the text in those spaces is that they do tend to stay at a larger, more sort of corporate level. And, um, and obviously having been raised in evangelical context and having a lot of experience there and appreciation for some things that I've received there often tends to experience at this like sort of uh, personal level. And it's not just, I don't feel like you're just sort of like intersecting those two spaces. It feels like sometimes my experience in those is that they both sort of stop at like the first answer mm, and yeah. out of one context, your first answer feels individual out of another context, your first answer feels corporate. And it feels like you push past, like, what's the first answer to get, like, I'm, I'm genuinely curious, like, how that works for you, like, how you get to that point of um, experiencing something like the Beatitudes, and maybe they have been taught in certain ways that you've experienced before, and you, like, there's an easy go-to there, but, like, you push past it in a way that moves us in some different spaces. Yeah. As far as how, that's a good question. I think part part of it for this book probably is, like I mentioned, the the genesis of it. Yeah, kind of set me up for that, right? Because I don't I don't know how to write this book and not think about my experience in Israel Palestine, and then for me that you know, there's also some storytelling in the book from some young leaders that I've gotten to work with, um, some gatherings in Sri Lanka and Kenya where these young leaders come from. El Salvador and Colombia and Afghanistan and Pakistan and East African countries and a lot of different places where there's a lot of hard work being done right now to create these new futures for a whole people. And so like that all, because it because of that provocation that happened in 2010 in the West Bank, I can't imagine reading these Beatitudes and not asking those questions. But conversely, because, like I, I forget if I describe it in the book this way or not. It, it was almost like, as I tried to like really sit with the way Jesus speaks of like the poor in spirit, the poverty within you, um, mourning and loss. It first to me, it almost felt like um, you ever like have a like you smell something that triggers a memory, but you can't track down the memory. You just know the smell is connecting to something in your past, right? And you kind of sit with it, and maybe later you realize, oh, that's like the perfume my mom wore, or there's a meal in the kitchen growing up, or you know, on a job site there was this like smell that was around, and then. Like, you know, immediately there's a familiarity to a past experience, but you have to figure it out. That to me was um, what it felt like to track down the resonances between, on the one hand, these kind of geopolitical matters and movement building. And on the other hand, um, me checking myself into a psych ward for 10 days because mm. I just faced childhood trauma. Mm. Um, it took some work, but it was very visceral and it made it hard to ignore that. Um, I also think it, like in preaching though, I, um, I've sensed what you've sensed that we, all of us, our communities and individually, a lot of us probably naturally gravitate toward maybe the personal 
with a blind spot toward the social and systemic or conversely we gravitate toward the social and systemic with a blind spot toward the personal and i think i've seen that in my own work and so i i, I feel i really want to resist that because i think there's a lot of problems when we do that and i think it just we just miss out on the kind of holistic and kind of bizarrely expansive way that scripture seems to hold all of that together and i I don't know. I, I don't want to. I, th- I think we need more of that kind of unitive work right now. Hmm. Um, so I want that and the genesis of the book kind of naturally uh, pointed in that direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then, um, so the book operates out of the framework of the Beatitudes of you have this encounter, begin sort of like wrestling with them and sitting with them for a bit. And the way that you approach the Beatitudes, I really appreciated and it was really helpful. And here, I'm going to read a couple of things that you wrote about them. You said, anyone who teaches these blessings or beatitudes as nice, logical, tidy set of instructions for good Christians isn't paying attention. Jesus is either totally naive or he's doing something unexpected, something way deeper than a simple, straightforward prescription for pious people. So you kind of, you go after the idea of like, um, that these are eight steps for how we become a good person or yeah. live the right kind of life. And so then you later write it like this. You said, if you come to these beatitudes in the middle of a breaking moment and all you've ever heard is that these blessings are asking you to be something you aren't right now, to perform something you haven't accomplished yet, to ascend to a virtuous elevation where the blessing is waiting for you, it's easy to either give up or die trying. Yeah. Yeah, would you talk a little bit about yeah, yeah. that way of... Yeah. So, uh, yeah, on that first movement, um, you know, I, and I'm not like a languages expert, so I'm borrowing from other people's work here, but, um, you know, when he when he says blessed, or, or in the Greek when he says makarios, that first word, you know, I, I actually, I kind of picture, right, Sermon on the Mount starts, right? So he gathers his disciples up, he sits down on the mountain, which is like Matthew's way of positioning him in the teaching seat of Moses, like... There's all this like build up and ramp up. And then like you can imagine yourself on the edge of your seat. Like, all right, Jesus, like this is your big like opening salvo. What are you going to do? And then the first word out of his mouth, I mean, in, written in Greek is Makarios, but he's speaking in Aramaic. So he says something like Ashray. Um, and again, language people out there, I know I'm probably botching the detail there. But but anyway, that first word like for everybody's going to create some expectations. Um, for for the Greek mind, it, he he's literally invoking the status of the gods, the what Dallas Willard calls the blissful existence of the gods. They're you know they're up there above the problems of this world, basically on a cruise, right? Um, so so in that kind of Greek thinking, there's that. But then in the Hebrew thinking, uh, like if anywhere you find like blessing given, like Psalm one for example, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of sinners or whatever that is, like. Blessed, you know, um, Ashray is a divine insurance policy against suffering. Like huh. quite literally, to be blessed is to be protected from suffering because you are virtuous. So he says that first word, and you just imagine everybody like, cool. He, he's going to describe to us the kind of life that has um, a divine insurance policy against suffering. And then he, and then he, you know, he goes on. He says, the poor in spirit, those impoverished within. And those who are mourning and the meek, those um, bridled by circumstances or systems or uh, those who are aching for things to be right in the world. And I think um, any attempt to like square that circle or to like reconcile the absurdity of that misses the point of it. Uh, I think paradox is the only appropriate category 
because if you if you set blessed next to poverty of spirit um it's it's it just doesn't add up and i think that's your first clue that he's doing something more transgressive or subversive than just lining up some instructions about how to be a good person or a good human um and then there's all that you know um dangling carrot theology that i think we're all so prone to where it's so tempting to just want to figure out, well, what do I need to do to get the blessing, right? To be the kind of person that God wants to bless. And a lot of preachers sell a lot of books and a lot of faith communities organize themselves around systems that are meant to pull all the right levers within God to get the life that you want. And so I, I get why we're susceptible to that, but um, it ends up exhausting us, I think, right? Um, and I think what's tragic about that, like as you read there from the book is, especially when you're suffering, man. I, uh, I'm thinking of a, a, a woman in our church that I was with on Sunday. Um, she's the matriarch of her family. Um, she's got kids and grandkids and nieces and nephews and cousins. And um, she, she is holding her family together, man. And um, there's a lot of pain working itself through that family. And I sense the weariness in her. And um, she was sharing with me a, a hard thing that someone that she loves is going through. And I just poked around a little bit. And um, the more I kind of poked around, the more I heard in her this kind of operative theology of like, you know, what do I got to do to get God to um, protect my loved ones from these things? And I could hear the weariness in her from that. Mm -hmm. um, I could feel the, like, the years of that script getting loaded in, you know, that this is how the universe works. And then I, I, the, the tears in her eyes told me that it's just breaking her, you know? Um, and so I think it's really damaging when we miss the fact that Jesus is doing something quite strange. But the trick is to not try to drag it into your existing categories of cause and effect. The trick is to, to let your own mind get sort of reformed by what he's doing rather than you letting what he's doing get sort of adapted into your existing categories for how the world works. Yeah, it's so good. And even as you were sharing that, I was thinking of a couple of encounters I've had recently. Similarly, like one one guy who um, was like a part of my church for years and sat under my teaching for years. And we were sitting, he's um, been unemployed for a little bit and he's been trying to get a job. And he told me, he's like, I've been doing my devotionals every day. Like I set uh -huh. aside yep. time for God every day. And he said, I've been praying a consistent, regular prayer of God. I surrender um, all of like everything to you, that my day is a consecration to you. Like he's using that sort of language. And he, when we last got together for drinks, he had just gotten turned down from another job. Uh, and yeah. so hard. And like he's in a really difficult place. And he said, like, um, something to the effect of, um, I don't understand why God isn't showing up for me because I'm showing up for him. Wow. And yeah, that's it right there. Yeah. yeah. It Yeah, and it feels like even um because it's really easy to sort of peg a kind of teaching that says like do these things and God will make you healthy and wealthy. Mm -hmm. But it's sure. like there's all this like stuff that's just sitting right there that we do approach God in that kind of way. And then to read the Beatitudes in that kind of way feels like it's um, loading up a heavy burden that you're trying to then uh, carry in the midst of your own weariness when he's talking to weary people. Yeah, that's right. 
That's right. And that, it's a, uh, it becomes almost sadistic, I think, huh. to render these blessings in that form. Um, once you realize the heavy burdens that you, you we're putting on one another, right? And I, I'm not trying to like go after preachers too hard here. I, I think this is like yeah. human nature. Yep. Human nature likes kind of a cause and effect universe. We like everything to make sense. And so I think it's, I, I get why we do that. I just don't think that's what Jesus is doing. Yeah. Well then like what, what's God offering us in the midst of this yeah. stuff? So I, what I'll say is what God has offered me in these things. And I, I try to say through the book, I'm like, I'm not even trying to offer the authoritative reading here. The best I can do is tell you what these blessings have been doing in me and, um, and what I've learned from others. Um, so if he blesses the poor in spirit, um, and if what you and I are kind of talking about here is I, I don't think he's saying, therefore become poor in spirit. Um, then, then, then what, what's the point of the blessing, right? And I, I think what Jesus really knows is that um, there, actually, there actually is a, a kind of impoverishment within us um, that he's not judging um, or shaming, but that we have all these ways of running from. And I think um, there's all these different, like whether it's psychology or like Enneagram theory or good old Christian discipleship, we have all these different ways of talking about it. But a lot of times we're getting at the same thing, which is um, what I think is true of us is that we have these kind of permeable souls, the, the kind of the place within from which you live, the place within from which comes like all the best things in your life, your power for your life, your capacity for love and for joy and for connection. Like that place within isn't actually like a container that like holds things. It's more like a conduit through which things flow. But I think the conduit life is really scary for us because we're not in control of it then, right? Um, and so whether it's the way that you experience God or the way that you experience joy or the way that you feel like you hold your inner resources, um, I think there's all these different ways that different kinds of human beings build defenses around the soul. Because the first time that you find yourself left bankrupted or empty within, it's such a terrifying experience that you're like, never again. And so for some, for different people, the, the defense around the soul looks different. And again, like one way of talking about the Enneagram for those who are familiar is that it's kind of naming nine different ways that we sort of barricade the soul and prevent it from sort of being a conduit again. And then it invites us to kind of unbarricade it. Right. Um, and so I think what you could do with this blessing is that rather than trying to like manufacture poverty of spirit within you, rather than trying to like perform that. Perhaps just the next time it comes to you, the next time you find yourself kind of vacated within, maybe um, maybe you wake up tomorrow and, and you check the news and there's just an awful headline, you know, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's the murder of another black man in America at the hands of the police, or it's a story from the, the war experience in Ukraine right now, or it's something happening in your own town, or conversely, you get a phone call and you get a diagnosis from your doctor and it just you know, your face turns white from the fear of it or whatever. Um, or someone you love, you know, lets you know that they're going through something so hard that you find your own heart dragged through it with them. But whatever happens, the next time you, you find your heart kind of emptied, your soul kind of poured out, it's in that moment I think this blessing can kind of sit with you and say, you don't have to run from that. You don't have to cover it up or avoid it. You don't have to numb yourself out. You could actually just abide it because Jesus says you're blessed even in that experience. And so like if you, if you trust that blessing just enough, like to not react, to not, you know, make all those moves that we make to avoid this really, really uncomfortable thing, 
then I think he's saying what what will happen then is that you've actually you've descended into the vulnerability of your soul rather than running from it, and that's precisely where you're going to meet the kingdom of God. Um, at the very end of the book, I, there's a story that I, I think I first heard through Parker Palmer, maybe, and it's the story of a rabbi who um, teaches his students um, to put the words of God on their heart. And one of the students says, Rabbi, why do you say put, let the words of God be on your heart and not in your heart? And I'm paraphrasing now. I actually forget quite how I wrote it, but the rabbi's response is something that like, only God could put the words in your heart. And so we say put the words on your heart so that later when, the, when your heart breaks, the words might fall in. And I kind of picture these beatitudes working like that. Like let these blessings sit on your heart. And then when the moment comes and when you need them, it's just possible like when the world breaks around you and something breaks within you, that in that moment, these blessings will kind of land deep and then they can do their work, not because you're forcing it or performing it, but because they're ready to meet you when you need them. That's so good. And it's so, um, well, in like the, the poor in spirit, the poverty within where you're, you're writing about that, you, you talk about that experience that we have in that same sort of way, but you say like, that's also the very life of God is that same sort of openness and emptiness. Yeah. Now, and now we're into what feels like the kind of the next level of the mystery, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this, and this is where it gets kind of mystical to me. And I, even as I'm writing it, I'm like, I hope this doesn't sound, you know, like angels dancing on a pinhead. Right. I, but there is this mysterious thing, right. Where um, the writer in Philippians says that Christ being in very nature, God, um, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And and what the Greek actually says is something like uh, he emptied himself, right? And you could read that as it is in the very nature of God for God to be emptied of God, which I know now we sound like we're just philosophizing. But once you find yourself emptied, it no longer feels like philosophy, I think. Like what if the moments when you just feel depleted within, emptied within, what if you let that text completely rewire your conception and help you understand that you're not further from God in those moments. You might be right there in the current of God in, um, you know, what some of these kind of mystical thinkers talk about, like the apophatic way of, of understanding God, which is not the fullness of God and the love of God and the things that we can say about God, but rather the emptiness of God and the strange feeling of absence that somehow even that, um, even that is an experience of God. Uh, yeah. I mean, and like, um, Eckhart, Meister Eckhart would talk about like, would like advocate that that is where you find God is when it's in the nothingness and not in the, um, can can I try to find and read, uh, that Merton quote real quick? Yeah, please do. Um, actually full credit. I actually first heard this read on Kent Dobson's podcast. Um, but Thomas Merton, we're not advertising other people's podcasts on here. Oh, my bad. My bad. Sorry. My bad. Well, my point is you can, you can get it here. You don't have to go over there. Right. (laughs) Um, that's so funny. I'm still getting used to, I I got my first copy of the book in the mail like a week ago. Are you serious? Can I see it? Yeah. Yeah. There it is. Uh, for listeners at home, we can't see it. It looks like a book. Um, (laughs) thank you. It's really a book. That's neat. That's really, how's it feel to like hold it? You know, getting to read it in a printed book like this helped me read it with a little more a little more distance from it. Okay. Like, help me try to hear it as if somebody else wrote it, which yeah. is kind of fun, you know? So um, so Thomas Merton, um, kind of famous contemplative author and monk, 
Uh, he wrote a book called New Seeds of Contemplation. And he's talking about, I, I mean, contemplation, he's talking about sort of living present with God. And this is his quote. Merton says, um, that when, that when we do that, when we try to be present with God, he says, even apparently holy conceptions are consumed along with all the rest. It's a terrible breaking and burning of idols, a purification of the sanctuary. And the sanctuary he's, he's talking about is the one within you, right? So that no graven thing may occupy the place that God has commanded to be left empty. The center, the existential altar, which simply is. I think he's, he's in that same stream saying that something is actually meant to remain empty so that no idol can fill it, including like a feeling of, of God, which itself could become an idol. So like, um, what has your experience been of like, what does that even look like um, to do, to practice, to experience? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I think it means to, it took me a while to even begin to develop um, it's hard to, it, what we're talking about is kind of the experience of emptiness or, or nothing. And it's, it's kind of hard to even become aware of that because we tend to ex- think that we experience things, not no thing, right? Um, but I think over time, often like some really hard moments in life will begin to introduce you to this feeling. Um, but if you, again, if you just, if you see it not as a threat, but as something that you can learn to welcome, um, then I think you'd, you try to begin to notice when are you experiencing that nothingness or that sort of evacuation of the spirit. And then when that happens, then watch out, be vigilant for the reactive instincts that you feel to run from it, ignore it, cover it up. I think we all have different versions of that. But if you sit long enough with your own life, um, our friends over at Onsite, they talk about medicators, which are external things that you use to avoid internal experiences. Everything from Netflix to substance abuse or you name it, but external things that help you avoid inner experience. Um, so the inner experience of nothingness and emptiness, once you recognize that's what you're feeling, then be on the lookout for those medicators, for those things that you turn to instead and, and try to just resist them. And then maybe just see what happens when you sit with it for a minute. And that doesn't mean you identify with it. It's not you. It's a thing that you're carrying. Uh, it doesn't mean you wallow in it, um, but you could just be present with it. Uh, turn to it for a moment and notice it. And when you notice it, notice how you feel about it. Um, and over time, I think what you might learn is as you learn to live with that rather than run from that, one of the gifts you're being given is that, like the weariness and exhaustion that come from either medicating ourselves or from trying to perform for God so that God would fill that emptiness. Like once you realize you don't have to do those things, um, uh, you'll be relieved, I think, of some of that weariness. And you might find, uh, you know, the the reward for the, the poor in spirit is yours is the kingdom of heaven. Um, God wants to give God's life to you. And, you, you know, I, I experience that as often like really subtle. And yet um, in moments where I sense that having sat with the emptiness for a moment and then kind of walking away from that act of presence, um, even like a 1% difference in my awareness of the presence of God changes the next few days in ways that maybe don't like have fireworks, but, um, but the, I, like I, I know in my spirit, something has shifted in me, um, for the, for the better. And, uh, I think it's, it's like learning to like notice when you're running from the emptiness, 
learn how to be present with it. And over time, um, see if you don't notice the, the small shift that's everything, which is that you're walking around with just a slightly expanded sense that like God's with you and in you and working through you. Hmm. It's really good. And we're, uh, we're about 39 minutes into this and we're just, uh, uh, with the first, uh, blessing beatitude here. So we got seven more to go. So good. good. Buckle up friends. <laughs> we're going like Rogan style, like a four hour episode. Oh gosh. I've never listened to one of his, so I don't, are they really that long? <laughs> I th- yeah. He'll go four hours. Yeah. Wow. You, sh- you should do one just for the cultural education. That's how you get famous is doing that. Apparently. Apparently. Yeah. Um, all right. So the way that you read the Beatitudes is that you take those first four and see yeah. them as doing something different, that there's a sort of turn that yeah. happens. Yeah, a, right. A kind of shift that Jesus makes in the way. Um, I, I want to ask you about something you write when you write about that, but do you mind first like describing that shift and then I'll, and then I'll read you a, a quote that you wrote? Yeah, so quick backdrop. Um, many interpreters for, you know, like 2000 years have observed some version of a shift and they have different ways of working it out. But a lot of people agree that there seems to be something happening with the first four that moves into something new with the second four. Uh, To me, um, the way I hear those first four blessings is that they speak to really just abiding our disempowerment, um, our, our suffering. I don't think Jesus wants us to be passive in the face of the circumstances and systems that drive our suffering. But I think the the inner experience of our suffering is with you whether you like it or not. So you, you can't resist it. You just have to embrace it. So in the first four, I hear him kind of like wooing you into the inner experience that you're running from. And then in the second four, I hear him describing a way of acting in the world, a way of kind of working things out in the world, uh, to be merciful, to be a peacemaker, to see God everywhere. And then the blessing for the persecuted, which kind of brings it home, um, I've got a kind of a theory in the book uh, that I won't drag out here, but that like evil is a limited resource. I don't, I've got lots of reasons for believing that, but I believe evil is a limited resource and persecution describes the experience of someone uh, who's been made a target by evil. And you know, if, if you have limited ammunition, you don't spray the field indiscriminately. You wait until a primary target comes within your sight and then you use your ammunition against that target, right? And to be persecuted is to find out that your life has become so powerful, like so potent, that, that you are a, a disruption to the disorder. Um, so much so that you need to be, you become like a pri- priority target, right? So anyway, the arc ends there with all this kind of power. And the way I take that is that like in these first few Beatitudes, Jesus is like helping us dismantle all of these kind of faux, like counterfeit visions of power you know, we want to react against our suffering. We want to punch back. We, and he's like, hey, if I can like take you into your heart and help you make peace with all of the pain that you're running from, then when you move out into the world, you'll be able to do it from a place of peace hmm. and you'll hmm. begin to make peace. And then the world that is broken will start to be put back together through you. So it's like he's got to like do the inner work before he moves us back to the outer work. And the outer work is going to come differently when we let those first blessings um, dismantle some of those reactive energies in us first. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it's, um, it reminds me a bit as you're sharing of like, um, one of the things that I've become convinced of, uh, is the, 
whatever language we use for like the deconstruction, reconstruction process of faith and however we understand that, is that for it to be a healthy move, there has to be an interior work that happens in order to like move in towards a greater expanse, a new understanding, whatever that sort of next space is. And it, so it feels like a little bit of like the way that it seems like the Beatitudes might work is it's doing that interior work um, mm -hmm. before you begin sort of living that out. And um, one of the things that I was experiencing in that sort of latter half of the book as you're walking through that after that turn happens and the way this stuff works itself out in our lives are some of the, the ways that I have learned from you and been challenged by you in um, how we approach our work in the world. And um, so like here's one of the things you wrote is you said um, – our denials always end up giving back to the world the very things that have wounded us, and then we wonder why the world keeps breaking. One of the deep perennial truths that every page of history tells is that whatever we're fighting cannot be defeated by the power that created it. That we end up reacting and using the same energy that we're trying to resist, and we end up using the same methods that have been used against us um, and we end up perpetuating uh, systems that that we're trying to dismantle. The, do you mind talking a little bit yeah. about like how that yeah. experience works and yeah, what you're getting at there? Yeah, I mean, I think the evidences for are everything from on the one hand, like uh, family systems, right? You know, family systems. If if something doesn't happen to transform the dysfunction in a family system, it just keeps getting perpetuated. Um, you know, I, I say this with tenderness, but like. Those who have been abused often abuse. Mm. Um, the bullied often become the bully. Um, uh, and then you can expand from family systems to larger systemic issues and just see that like, it's just, we, it either ricochets around, right? It either boomerangs, it, um, or it has to get sublimated. It has to get metabolized into our life. And um, I think we have to sit with the kind of work that Jesus wants to do in those first blessings for it to be, transformed i mean you know and then a number of teachers have kind of made this fa phrase famous but that if you don't tra transform your pain you'll transmit it and that's another way of saying it and i think jesus is sort of with these blessings he's sort of ushering us into the transformative process so that we can then you know give something different back to the world um another way of saying it is i think when we suffer it can feel like all we have is the pain which means it feels like all you have to give back is the pain right um, but Jesus, with these first blessings, is saying that when you suffer, the pain isn't all you have. You have the kingdom of God. You have the the glory of of realizing that things are that are lost are only transformed. They're not lost. Um, you have the the realization that even though the system around you might prevent you from having what you need, that your real inheritance can never be taken from you. Mm -hmm. You have um, the idea that even your hunger for for justice or righteousness is itself in some strange way a feast. And when you when you begin to experience that, not just believe it, but experience it, you then can move out into the world not so reactive and white knuckled. You can move out into the world generous and open handed, even though the world's gonna keep coming at you. And um, when, I've, when I've sat with like bona fide peacemakers, whether they're working on big gnarly systemic stuff, or whether I've just seen the presence of real peacemaking in a family system or in my church or with a friend, you can just tell there's something about that person that pain, violence, difficulty can come into them, but somehow something else comes out. And I don't think it's enough to say that they just chose to not give it back. 
because I, at the end of the day, um, I don't think you can override, you know, the, the wholeness or the brokenness within you. You live from it whether you like it or not. And so the only real way is to go through the healing of it. That's so good. And uh, I feel like there's so many like poignant examples of that um, that you give throughout the the next several chapters of your book. And I thought like one of them that I thought was, a, for me at least, a really hopeful picture of how this works itself out is you tell a story um, that you use in a sermon that you call uh, uh, oh. about a woman that you call the snotty lady. Yeah. Um, and I instead, well, it, the basics of the story. Well, I'll like, why don't you tell the basics of the story instead of me trying to recreate your story here for you? Because <laughs> I thought if I picked one, like that was one that for me was actually really helpful. That I felt like was a good mirror held up for me to sort of hold some things in check. Yeah, yeah. So, long story short, um, at, at South Bend City Church, we have a few mantras, and one of them is "Everyone an icon." And so we're just trying to work out how do you really learn to see the image of God in everyone? And then one of the ways we don't do that is by othering people. Um, so it's like it's kind of an everyday pedestrian story, but it happened to me in high school. I was working at Barnes & Noble in the cafe. I'm making drinks, and my friend Jenny's at the cash register. And in the middle of a random day working retail, um, th this woman comes in to order coffee. And th this is the part of the story where if you've ever worked a service job, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, it might be hard for you to imagine hmm. just how awful people can be if the person they're talking to is wearing an apron or on the other side of a service counter. So this woman comes in and just completely unprovoked, just treats Jenny like crap. I mean, and, and by the way, Jenny's brilliant at her job. She's like bright and smart and friendly, but not too friendly, like respects your dicks, like all that stuff, right? And um, so when I tell the story, I, I nickname the, the customer Snotty Lady. I'm talking about how awful Snotty Lady is. And I'd make a joke about how I'm trying to figure out how I can get some of my snot and Snotty Lady's drink. And um, and then Manager Lady comes in and Manager Lady is, is behind Snotty Lady in line. And this is our manager. And she was a great manager. And she was really protective of her employees. And she was also really savvy. And so in the middle of Snotty Lady's charade against Jenny, manager lady kind of finds a moment to interrupt and speaks over the shoulder of snotty lady to jenny and she asked jenny a question which happened to be based in truth she says hey jenny i heard you got into harvard are you excited and of course this is where snotty lady just turns on a dime and all of a sudden she's like kissing up to jenny and pandering to jenny and i'm just watching this whole thing just disgusted by it right and i tell the story to just kind of illustrate how easily we can other somebody you know and i have all these questions like well if you forget that people have a story behind their behavior, you've probably othered them. You know? So anyway, I've told this story for years in sermons because we renew the vision for this mantra every year. And then I was over at my friend Dave's church in Belfast at Redeemer Central preaching the same sermon and telling that story. And then it, like at the end of my sermon as I'm bringing it home, somebody in the congregation there raises their hand, which is awkward because I didn't know if we did that kind of thing at that church. But I acknowledge that, hey, can I help you? Like, have you got a question? And they just, in like four words, they totally indicted what I had just done. And they, all they said was, what about snotty lady? And like in that moment, I just, I kind of turned red. I'm like, uh, yep. Like, you know, I literally have written a sermon and included a story whose entire point is to demonstrate how easily we other people. And I literally was unaware, totally unconscious of the fact that I was manifesting the very behavior I was critiquing. 
until that guy raised his hand. And I've, I've thought often too about how, um, you know, Belfast has a really painful history with the troubles and the kind of sectarian conflict that uh, has destroyed lives in that city, uh, especially up through the 90s. Um, and I know that all the wounds are still there when I talk to friends who live in Belfast. And I thought maybe, maybe I had to go to Belfast or a place like that um, to get educated a little bit further on how much work I had to do in my own craft. And maybe it took somebody who has seen how in the very act of thinking that you are, you know, doing the good work, you could be unconsciously perpetuating the very harm that you're trying to confront. Uh, and that's a lot of what this book is about, that if you're not careful, you end up perpetuating the very thing that you're trying to defeat. And um, we think that we can use the means that broke the world to heal the world. And uh, in my case, it was a trying to tell a clever story, but it, it was a really good object lesson for me and how that happens. So yeah, say yeah. more about why that hit you. I mean, I think like that's one of my constant struggles is the um, thinking I am moving in a way that is more righteous or is seeking out justice in the right kinds of ways, but I'm actually doing the very thing against a group of people that it's that I'm now in a new and different group or tribe or whatever that um, that sees itself as more educated, expansive, include whatever the sort of thing is. And, um, and in that framework, I have found that I often will do that same sort of thing that, ha that was done to that group in earlier iterations of myself. Uh, yeah. Yep. That like, I haven't lost the, um, there's something that's underneath it that I've carried with me. Um, and it's just taken on a new form. And, uh, and it felt like really easy to be on the side that you were on as you're telling that story of like, look at what a terrible person snotty lady is yeah. and to not see her humanity. Um, yeah, to me, it's like, we're not talking about, we're not talking about not confronting things and we're not talking about not challenging things that are broken. And we're not talking about not addressing bad behavior, but to me, um, the, the two words or phrases that like creep in um, contempt yeah, or self-righteousness, right? I think that that's, we're talking about how what you might be addressing to somebody who had contempt for you or contempt for your group or contempt for somebody, but to think that we can then be part of the healing of all of that by just, you know, returning contempt for contempt or scorn and shame. I, that's where I think um, we're all a little confused. That's so good. And I mean, I think it's also a good picture for me of um, the way you don't stop with the easy answer. Because it feels like um, there's a good story that was helpful at the point that you were making. Um, and there's a stop to it that a lot of us would have stayed with. And you allowed yourself to go into another mm -hmm. place with it. And even like... Uh, Obviously, Belfast and that question moved you there, but I know, like, I don't know if I would have moved there uh, necessarily. Like, I think I would have been like, I would have found ways to be justified in that view uh -huh. that I was holding. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I often do appreciate about you is that you push past that into like, um, yeah, not not the not settling with just the first answer. Mm. 
well, here's one of the things that I know about you. We're, I mean, we've been chatting for a while here, so but before we like round it up, I, I feel like if I had just said to you like, "Hey, what should this interview look like?" You would have put together a much better interview. You've got like really good thoughts and questions, and you're always like, "Here's what you should be doing here, Mike." Like, uh, <laughs> I was processing a teaching with you, and you're like, "Hey, have you thought about this?" And you'll open up like new avenues and doors or whatever. Uh, well, so, I do. I do love you, and have a beautiful plan for your life. <laughs> uh, so, is there something that you feel like I should have been asking you that I haven't asked you? It essentially, I, oh. I'm like, what am I? What am I not like opening up here that I should have opened up that I missed the opportunity for? Man, that's a good question. I'm, I'm kind of thinking through um, who I think your listener is because you know I'm kind of operating some of the same community spaces and um i'm thinking a lot about people who are drawn to um that kind of post-evangelical experience or who who land there um you know i, I think for a lot of us and I, i'm including myself like as one of your listeners um uh we have, there's a chapter in the book about um peacemaking and we talk about the borderlands um these liminal spaces and i think um I think that might be an especially important word for all of us who are in the kind of no man's land that we find ourselves in as um, we try to follow Jesus out beyond the world that we came from and to different postures and places. And I, just, I think loneliness and um, the loss of belonging is one of the experiences that marks a lot of us who are in this sort of kindred cohort of, um, of learning right now. And, um, you know, to that, I, I just want to say um, that, yeah, like when you when you leave behind a group or a tribe or a faction where you were at home for a long time, maybe you leave them or maybe they kick you out. Um, and then in the wake of that experience, uh, maybe you look around for other places to call home and you don't find one right away. And maybe maybe you're branded like an enemy from the places that you may want to enter, but you're a traitor to the place that you left behind. And so you, you just find yourself in a no man's land. Uh, um, my friend Johnny, who also works in the context of Northern Ireland, he calls it the borderlands. And I, I just want to say, like, I know um, the borderlands are fraught with um, loneliness and sometimes fear. Our brains really like to know what group we belong to. It's hardwired in our species history to want to know what group we belong to because having your group is how you're safe. Um, but I, I just want to say like, um, I, I've really come to believe it's, it's not until we experience that, that some of the really profound and good work can happen in us and through us where there's a kind of divine belonging with God that it's available to everyone. I don't, I don't think God withholds that from anyone. But I think for most of us, we're going to have a hard time hearing it and knowing it until we find ourselves in those wild places. And so um, that's, that's one blessing in particular from the Beatitudes that oh. as I was working that out in my own life, it, it brought to mind the experiences that a lot of us who have connected in the last couple of years have been talking about. And I think that that blessing in some ways is especially for you, for anybody listening who um, has felt that kind of loss of belonging and alienation as you, you actually try to follow further the things that you're learning from Jesus. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry that that's such a big part of the experience, but I'm also um, hopeful uh, for the, the kind of beauty that comes from those wild places where you, um, a little bit like Jesus, might have the testing 
where a voice in the back of your head said, if you really belong to God, why are you out here? And then, you know, in response, you get to double down on your knowledge that it's precisely because you belong to God that you're there. Hmm. That's so good. And would you say the way that you phrase that, because it's, it's from the Beatitude, right? That's uh, blessed are the peacemakers for they'll be called children of God. Yeah. And then how do you, you take a turn of that phrase in the way that you kind of work it out? Um, let's see. Uh, the, the chapter title is belonging is the problem until you know you belong to God. Hmm. And then part of that's because I, some of the work there is kind of dismantling all this group identity stuff that's causing a lot of problems in the world. But I think I've also often said, I, I used to, th I've heard people say that the reason that the um, peacemakers are called children of God is that they, they, uh, they bear the family trait, right? They look like God because God makes peace. I love that. I think it's true, but that's not what I hear this blessing doing in my experience of it. Really, um, I think it's because I think Jesus says you belong to God because you might not belong to anybody else. Um, but that somehow that actually ends up being the blessing. Um, because to belong to your group, but to not know that you belong to God, I think is to leave something really unsatisfied in the soul. And then perhaps to lose that belonging with your group, but to know that you belong to God is actually to find something really deep within um, like a need met that the soul hungers for. That's so good. Oh, okay. Um, I want to have you like close this out by reading a blessing that you write at the end of your book. But before we get there, uh, I want to make sure folks know where to find you on the internets and all of that. And so the book is called When the World Breaks. It's on all, it's in all the places. You can get in all the things. Um, but where do, where do folks find you, pay attention to you, follow you? Yeah. Uh, let's see. So South Bend City Church is the church I get to pastor and our podcast has a lot of teachings from me and some other great teachers. Um, on social, uh, the one place I try to show up faithfully is Instagram and I'm Jason Adam Miller there. And then, uh, if they want to hit my website, they can sign up for my email list. I promise not to spam you, but if you want to stay in the loop on stuff, that's a great place to go. Awesome. Um, yeah, well, I'm so appreciative for you. Uh, like you've been such a good friend. I'm so grateful that we crossed paths, uh, when we did in Israel, Palestine, you've been a gift to my life and. I'm really grateful for this book to come out to be that same sort of gift towards others. And um, at the end of the book, you kind of take that structure, the Beatitudes, and the way that you're reading it and kind of unpacking for us, and you turn it into a blessing. And I would love to uh, have you close out our time by offering that blessing, if you don't mind. I'd love to. Before I do, um, I'll echo the thanks, man. I, w I was thinking uh, when we're getting ready for this, I was like, what are all the things I love about Mike Goldsworthy? You know what came to the top of the list? You're one of the most generous laughers I know. And getting a belly laugh out of you is like the best part of my day. <laughs> and I feel like being a person who laughs generously is a sign of like open-heartedness and kindness. I really love that about you. Um, that's just one of many things on the list. I'll take that out. Uh, okay, good. Um, yeah, so this is um, me just trying to offer... This is how I hear these blessings now. And I... Uh, I thought I would want to end the book not with um, an analysis of blessing, but with an act of blessing. And so um, this is for your listeners today. When the world breaks and you find that you've been robbed in spirit, when you look to that place within where you would hope to find hope and joy and power and peace, and instead find a poverty, may you know that you are in the terrain of heaven because the soul is not a closed system. We are conduits of God. 
and the open-heartedness that allowed you to be robbed as you suffered is the very disposition that will allow you to be filled with the divine. When the world breaks and you suffer great loss, whether it's the loss of hope or the loss of a dream or the loss of a beautiful arrangement or the actual loss of someone you loved, may you mourn bravely and in naming the void where the gift once stood, may you discover the eyes of your soul dilated, your inner being flooded with light for nothing good can ever be lost in God and the glory we yearn for is still with us. When the world breaks and you find your strength bridled, either by circumstance or systems, when you find yourself unable to take for yourself the things you need, may you trust that an open hand is all that's needed to receive, for you will inherit everything, as nothing real was ever the possession of those who have bridled you in the first place. When the world breaks and you find yourself aching for things to be made right, either within you or around you, whether the fractures have happened in your life or have come against your life, may you trust the sacred pangs of hunger. May you know how holy your parched palate is. And rather than allowing your thirst to be slaked by false promises and faux justice, may your ache become a compass that leads you to a feast of peace. If you've been wronged and are finally given the rightful power of the victim to exact revenge, may you remember that you were forged from the same moral fabric as the one who violated you. And without creating a false equivalence between victims and those who have perpetrated their suffering, may we remember our own need for mercy. If you find your heart darkened by cynicism, may you see past the illusion that corruption is the final word. May your own shadows be the proving ground for a more perceptive vision, and may the eyes of your heart be enlightened, giving you an uncommon capacity to see God, to see light, and even the darkest corners of our world. If you find yourself called out into the borderlands, into the no man's land beyond your own faction, forsaking group belonging, and if in those borderlands you find yourself desperately alone, feared by your enemies and called a traitor by your own, May you discover that you have become a child of God, claimed by the divine. May you discover a cosmic and irrevocable sense of belonging as you walk the lonely path of peace. If you find yourself persecuted, made a target by the powers of disorder that are breaking the world, may you know that you have become a threat to the disorder. You have become a conduit of the divine. You have become an agent of love. So when the world breaks and it tries to break us, May we trust that we, too, will be raised up. Peace to you, friends. Amen and amen. Make that be like your your uh, your sizzle quote at the top. I'm putty in your hands, Mike. <laughs>